Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome back to the Prep to Pro NBA Draft Podcast. My name is Ben Pfeiffer and as always I'm joined by my co-host Max Carlin. Max, how's it going? I'm doing well, Ben. How are you? I'm good and today uh, we have part two of our discussion with uh, TJ Farrick, Swarthmore assistant coach about player development as it relates to evaluation and the draft. And we talked a lot about player development and stuff last week and we're going to talk about more about how it relates to evaluation so uh I, I actually forgot to introduce tj so tj how's it going uh good good happy to be back <laughs> yeah back as in we all left the room briefly and and came back but it's a couple days for for all of you listeners so i'm um, yeah we're, we're, without without rambling too much let's get into it there is no shortage of action going on with our partners over at betonline.ag. The sports world is slowly making its way back with the NBA announcing its return in late July. But right now, UFC, boxing, NASCAR, and international soccer have all resumed play, and BetOnline has the best odds slash lines for their best upcoming games and matches. Need more? BetOnline has simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC happening live every day for our devout gamblers to check out. BetOnline also offers hundreds of live casino games, poker tournaments, and the best props in the business. Visit BetOnline.ag on your computer or mobile device and join now to receive your welcome bonus. BetOnline.ag, your online wagering experts. Uh, so yeah, in, in part one, we talked a lot about just broad strokes, player development, coaching, um, but now we're going to apply it a little bit more to directly to prospect evaluation. Um, so one other thing that kind of kind of bothers me most in draft evaluation is that it really is like a snapshot in time evaluation where for the most part, uh, people are looking at one year of, of play from the, from these prospects. And I mean, we, we talked so much in, in part one about how so much of, of this, of, you know, a prospect's outcome is player development. It's, it's not the evaluation aspect. So, the most obvious thing that you would look at uh, when trying to project future player development would be past player development. Um, so I, I guess like when you're, when you're looking not necessarily from a draft perspective, TJ, but from uh, a coaching perspective, like how important is it to you to look at a player's past development in order to guide how you develop them going forward? I'm not really sure of the answer to that, but I, 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 I do want to talk a little bit about John Morant uh, mm-hmm. here because I think he's one of the more fascinating stories in, in American player development over the last, I don't, I don't know, six years or whatever. Um, 
and uh, kind of his developmental arc being so much off the grid. And, and in many ways, when I, I researched him um, a little bit and uh, found out how his dad basically went about it. Uh, and that was a fascinating case study uh, to figure out how he developed into who he is today. Um, and then to think about what is going to happen with him going forward, I guess. But um, what was the question again? I don't know. <laughs> I know I just take, take it down the, 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 uh, the jaw um, road if, if you want. Um, I don't know. My, my question is, eh, it's not important. Go, go ahead with the, the jaw story. So, so yeah. So John Morant, um, John Morant in ninth grade played on a, I think, I think this is a fairly well-known story, right? So played on an AU team with um, Zion Williamson and they both said they were role players on the team. And, or maybe that was eighth grade. And there, there was a guy who was, who was like a top ranked um, eighth grade guard or something like that on the team. He kind of got all the shots and stuff. And so, that's that's one that's one kind of uh, point. Um, there's there's another story about John Moran that I think a lot of people maybe don't know is that John Moran, he has a, a full court in his backyard, um, and his and his dad was a Division two player, and his dad um, basically was his quote unquote trainer for a lot of times, and I think probably like guided a lot of his decisions. But in in John Moran's backyard, he talks about in a few SBN articles about him and the kids in the neighborhood just kind of like coming together and just playing basketball when they were young. Right. So like just instead of like he would train with his dad and stuff, but just like being in the backyard, playing three on three, playing four on four um, in the summer and just playing basketball a lot. And so when you look at John Morant at, at, at what, what he became at Murray state and what he was, you, I think you see a lot of that in his game. Like he just looks like a dude who is hooped a lot. Um, and so that's that's one point. And then another point with him is that so his ninth grade season, he he took the summer off from AAU to simply train with his dad. And his dad not only does training in like the um, in a traditional sense, like basketball training, like coming off the of ball screens, dribbling, finishing, but he also does a lot of explosive um, what's it what a plyometric training, uh, tire jumps. Um, and then adding challenge and that and stuff. So he took his entire ninth grade season off. Um, his 10th grade year, his coach wanted him to be on the varsity team. And he told the coach that he didn't want to be on varsity. He wanted to be on JV. And so he played his entire 10th grade year on JV. Um, because I would assume he would have the ball in his hands and he would have to make the decisions and and do the things and have the responsibilities rather than maybe being the six or seven man on varsity. Um, and then he kind of took off his 11th grade year um, – but still didn't play. He played for, I think, for a circuit team, but also for, like, a smaller AAU team. Um, and then everyone knows the, the story about how they found him in a back, the back gym playing three-on-three three at a showcase event. So I don't, I don't really know um, what all of that says, but he's a very fascinating case study in terms of player development being off the grid and also making unorthodox decisions to prioritize – having the ball and having responsibility. Um, I, I just think that um, he's, and then becoming, what was, was he the second pick? Second pick. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's kind of a real world illustration of the thing that we talked about in part one with, with throwing a guy into the G league where it seems like Ja at all of these different turns put himself in a position where he would be getting on ball reps and seeing, just seeing a lot of basketball and developing that pattern recognition that um 
you know, ends up being what we call basketball intelligence or feel or whatever it may be. Um, so it, it seems like he's a real world illustration of that, which is, which is really cool. Uh, and, and like a, I think probably an important case study. Uh, and I mean, it gets to the, to the point you mentioned with, with Kobe, like the, you know, the, the real developmental story that comes from Kobe is not staying, you know, getting up at 5am to be in the gym. It's playing 400 NBA games by the time you're 23. Um, or play or playing, you know, probably four years of high school where he had the ball in his hand all the time, you yeah. know, and maybe you, and me, and I think it's, I'm not saying it's not Kobe's story that he was up at 5 a.m. Because by all accounts, he was up at 5 a.m. in high school in the gym. <laughs> but but there were so many game reps involved in that um, in between the age of 14 and and 22 that it just it's it boggles the mind to think how much live basketball Kobe Bryant might have played in that time. Yeah, yeah. I or Ben, you can go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, I was just gonna quickly point out. I, I think it's fascinating, like like how much, like how much that that first of all, that story specifically is like ingrained in, in, into basketball culture, and I'm sure like how much that weighs on like young kids, especially like coming up now. And then like relating that to you know like the, the to John Morant and and the AAU circuit, which has become very like popularized and like kind of done in a certain way with these kids coming up through through high schools and then going to, you know, these powerhouse AAU teams playing like tons of games in a short span. And then, you know, playing, you know, you know, a lot of players rather play for powerhouse high schools or, you know, go to schools like, like Montverde or Patrick school or IMG. to you know, play there. Um, and, and then like, yeah, but like John Morant didn't kind of describe that and went about it differently. And, you know, wasn't, it's kind of like straight away from like mainstream basketball culture in terms of the track of, of guys going from high school to college to, to NBA. So I'm, I, I, I wonder like how fixable something like so deep rooted in like, not just like player development is not, not just player development trends, you know, it, as we're talking about at the college and the NBA level, but you know, in these players ideas of like what basketball is and like how to be, and like how you are supposed to go about being good at basketball, you know, from, from a really young age and, you know, like, like, like how we teach these things. So. I think that's essentially yeah, what I'm kind of getting at is like both of those, like both the basketball culture thing. And I'll come back to that in a second. Cause I don't think it's, people are always like, Oh, it's bad. Or Montfair and IMG and AAU. Like, I think a lot of people in my world at least are like, have a, a derisive attitude towards those things. And I don't. Um, but, but the Kobe mythology, I think is very real with young kids and, and it's, and it's harped upon all the time. And that's what I heard coming up as a player is you got to be out there in the snow and the wind and the rain by yourself, putting in the work. And that's perhaps partially true, but the real truth is that it, it is that and more so playing basketball, getting live reps, playing live games. Like when I was a player, I was never, I never ended up being a good player, but I played division three. I was a bad player on a bad team. But when I was, I was putting in hours and hours of individual work back in the day by myself and not playing basketball because I thought the individual work was like the thing to do. Cause that's what everyone said. Right. Um, but it's, uh, that's not it. <laughs> and then the, the, the basketball academy thing we can get to in a second, but I think that like that's an individual decision. Like Jalen Jalen Duran, you guys you guys know Jalen Duran? Yeah. 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 So like Jalen Duran's a Philly kid, or he was he was playing in the Philadelphia Catholic League and like really high level basketball in the Philadelphia Catholic League. Jalen Duran needs to be at Montverde Academy. Like in order to develop into the player that you know he can be. Yeah. No, I yeah. I remember watching like Oscar Shibway last year playing in in whatever like poor uh, high school conference he was playing in. Yeah, yeah, like Giannis. Yeah, yeah, he really did. He really did look like Giannis. Um, 
And so, yeah, I think that, you know, getting a good level of competition is important. I mean, and it's, yeah, you kind of need like the balance of the two things where you both need these decision-making reps, not necessarily on-ball reps, I guess, but you need these decision-making reps where you're actually taxed, but you also need a competition level that's going to put you in a situation where like you can't afford to make bad decisions and just compensate for it anyway with say shot making or something like that. Um, so you need, you need a balance of those things, but, but this idea of like putting yourself in position to, to get on ball reps, like it is, it is very interesting to me, especially with, with the younger guys. And, and like, I think emphasizes the, the need for multiple contexts that we talk about so much, because I, I think about someone like Reese Beekman, who I, I know Ben, like, you, you've noted this before that with Phenom you like, or, or maybe, maybe Ross noted it, but with, with Phenom, with Phenom you like does not play a very central role, but then with this high school team is like a pretty ball dominant guy. Um, and it's just like getting those multiple contexts. I think like it allows you, or like I would think, I guess it allows you to apply these, these like skills that you learn to a different role in a way that like might project forward very differently. So I guess like to, to turn that into a question, like TJ, how much do you think that like getting that, like trying different roles is, is very important for a player in order to develop different skill sets that will coalesce in, in, you know, one role and, and make them better at that role. Right, dude. That that is such an interesting question, man. I don't have an answer to it. I, I but that's that's definitely something that I've thought a lot about. And I'll use an example of another Philly kid, Sam Sassum. Sam is um, Sam played at Shipley, so I, I we played against him a lot um, when I was at Penn Charter, uh, and so I saw him play like at least once a year, probably like eight times throughout high school, uh, maybe ten times throughout high school. And so I knew his game pretty well, and he was always on the ball always on the ball. And then he, he went to Binghamton and he scored a thousand points in, in two years at Binghamton. He's in Penn State. So, and, and, but again, and I, I did a, a kind of a, an evaluation of him um, by myself just because I was trying something out. Um, but he's so dominant on the ball and he's always just been on the ball. And so when he gets to Penn State, it's going to be interesting to see like, how is he going, is he going to be able to thrive in any way or not thrive, but even like exist off the ball in a, in a meaningful way. Um, and so that'll be interesting. But like that, that question is so interesting to me. Like if a kid, if a kid is a primary creator for his high school team, should he also be a primary creator for his club team? Or should he perhaps have like a secondary creator role so that he can meld into um one complete player or whatever it is. And I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I'd be interested to hear your guys, your take on that. Yeah. I mean, just like logically and, you know, thinking, uh, thinking about what we talked about in part one a lot. I mean, it makes sense that, you know, having different stimuli and different challenges, you know, makes you a better player and, you know, makes your brain more, you know, reactive to, to different situations. I mean, I, I, so yeah, the, the example I like to think of is, is, is Scotty Barnes, who, you know, who, with his AAU team, with Knight Riders, is is on the ball every possession and you know effectively plays point guard. And you know he, he's very good at it. I mean in AAU, he's an awesome basketball player in that setting. But then when he goes to Montverde, he is in a completely complementary role, playing next to Cade Cunningham off the ball. And that's that's likely going to be more analogous to what he ends up doing in the NBA. But I mean, j- just because that's the truth, I don't think that means like it's more important. I mean, we, we talk about how, how important primary creation is and, and how difficult therefore primary creation is. Cause you know, it's, it's a difficult skill to find and guys who are legitimate, you know, offensive drivers are, are rare, but that doesn't mean, you know, 
it isn't any more it, it difficult than, than playing in you know an off ball role for a guy who has primary created for, for so long. I mean, TJ talks about you know the the Binghamton player who who has done primary creation this whole time. But I mean, if, if I, I would I would wager that he would struggle pretty mightily off the ball because it's just a different context that your brain hasn't seen before. Um, you know, like. Which is what a reason like you know Scotty I think is so is is a good example because he's excelled in both of these roles and I think that bodes really well for his future because I mean let's say I mean even if you run like is you know running a high pick and roll is is theoretically more taxing and more difficult than than attacking a closeout but I mean if you've run you know thousands of pick and rolls and of course all all pick and rolls are different but if like let's say Scotty Barnes spends a whole summer with his AAU team running high pick and rolls and running high pick and rolls. And then he goes to, and then he goes to, to, you know, Montverde and he has to do a totally different thing. He, he's, he's attacking closeouts. He's playing in the post. He's setting screens. He, he's making plays up the short roll. I mean, yes. I mean, making attacking closeout is, is technically less difficult than, than maybe executing a complex pick and roll read, but it's, but it's a different stimulus that your brain has to adapt to and that you have to execute. And I think, you know, just thinking about it in, in that from that lens makes it. I mean, again, I I don't have any like empirical data or research to back to back up what I'm saying, but just logically, it makes sense that you know guys who are able to succeed in like at lots of different basketball you know actions and in lots of different environments, you know, that that seems like a like a positive indicator uh, at least to me. I I would assume. One of the things though that I would say could I don't want to say a counterpoint, but there are things that transfer between roles that are not necessarily the same thing that you're doing in a given role. So the example I'd give is like, say you've got a, a six, five player who at lower levels is an on ball creator. And like TJ was talking about earlier, like it's very good to be a hop shooter because you can get into, you know, you can get into that shot in all these weird contexts. So this six, five initiator has lots of experience getting into his shot as a hop shooter off the dribble in you know like weird context he's contorting his body like he's moving in different directions so this player gets to a higher level now and now they're an off-ball player and you have them running off screens like now this player who's who's spent say his entire life uh working as an on-ball player and has has like really cultivated his pull-up shooting well now he's now he's shooting off movement and he's got the ability to hop into shots to contort his body in different ways to like approach from all these different angles and and get a shot off and i would say that while that's a very very different uh thing it's there are transferable skills there that have made this player well suited to the role um i don't know how that factors into this whole discussion but but i i do think that it's like a counterpoint to the idea that a guy needs to necessarily play different roles because i do think that simply by playing basketball you'll develop skills that transfer like to other, uh, you know, ways of playing basketball. Right. And this is where I'd, I'd bring it back to practice a little bit. Like team practice, I think is a, is a, is a really valuable area where guys can experiment in different roles. You can experiment with guys in different roles. So you can, I know, I'll use uh pen team right now as an example. We have two guys who are ninth graders who are both really good on ball. Like, you know, like they're young guards, right? They're, they played with the ball in their hands. And I think that the practice environment is one where you can say, okay, five minute scrimmage, you're going to be on the ball. You're going to be off the ball and then we'll swap. Right. So like, I think that's, that's how I would maybe approach it in development. Sorry, Ben, you were going to say something. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, that was, I mean, I, I, I didn't have an important point. Just, just kind of to, to add to what Max is saying. I mean, I'm just curious, like fundamentally, from like a, from like a brain reaction standpoint. I mean, how much? Yes, I mean, obviously, like those skills are like very transferable. I mean, hopping into a shot and being able to contort your body works. You know, are are necessary skills for for a successful pull up shooting and for a successful you know off movement shooting. But I mean, there are like different components of that of that um with actions i mean like gathering off of the dribble versus sprinting into a catch and shoot you know are fundamentally different like movements for your body and you know i i'm i'm less i'm curious about you know less about like the specific movement translating and more just like about having different movements you know like a different like 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 we talked about you know making sure like you know you you talked about you know having a drill where where the the player fails 40 percent of the time you know having a different challenge for you know for the body and for the brain something they just like haven't seen before and you know adapting to that challenge about how much that really matters and like how much that helps to development right i I would bring this back now to to what i i think i've cited him earlier i'm sure i did brian mccormick says there are three different parts to to skill. There's, there's movement, there's perceptual and there's conceptual. And I think we've moved now from when we're talking about different roles, I think we've moved now from, uh, not moved from on from movement, but like we've moved to the conceptual realm, I think here. So what we're talking about is like, if you are a primary creator, can you play off the ball and adapt to someone's drive, like, and react to someone's drive? Or are you just kind of like, you're sitting in the corner and your man's helping down and you're just continuing to sit in the corner and not shaking up. You know, like that's that's something that needs that's a conceptual thing that needs to be uh, learned through live game reps in a different role. You know, like anyone can use that kind of like, let's say it's just a side pick and roll. Let's say a side pick and roll. Right. If you're very used to using a side pick and roll and you've never played in the ball side corner, you won't automatically know to shake up when the when your guy helps in on the roll. Right. So that that's something that you need to develop through live game reps in that in that alternative role. Yeah. And I mean, along with that, you, you could say that the, you know, if you get a chance to then, you know, play on the, in the ball side corner and you, and you, you know, you have to like lift up to the wing or whatever. Now you might better understand that when you're running that pick and roll, that that's where the shooter is going to be for you to kick to or something like that. Like that, that sort of thing where, where it's a, like a touch concept and it kind of leads into like something I wanted to ask you about is like, have you noticed any touch skills? Like something that we, I think specifically have talked about is Kyra, uh, Kyra Lewis being so smooth transitioning from from dribble to pass, and how we think that that kind of bodes well for his pull up shooting? Because I mean, like like physically, it's a it's a fairly similar thing to do, right? You're transitioning a dribble by gathering it, and then you you're you know executing some other action, um, and you're doing all this again while reacting to and processing various uh, stimuli. So, like, have you noticed in your in your coaching, any things that you consider to be touch skills? That's a, that's a really good question. I, that's, that's, I think, again, one that you, you guys probably have a way better idea than I do. Like the, just through your evaluative lens, like, like how is Kyra Lewis as a pull-up shooter right now? Uh, he's, he's pretty good. Um, I think he's, he's not yet at a point where he's willing to launch them probably as much as he should uh, one of the things I think one of the reasons that he struggles in isolation is not just that he like doesn't really have a lot of shake as a ball handler, but that guys don't necessarily respect his pull up that much and will sag off of him a little bit. And then once you're doing that, like since he's not that deceptive, you can like I, you can't I won't I don't want to say you can move with Kyra Lewis, but he's like he's a little predictable. 
Um, and I think that's part of why he's he's struggled as a as an isolation scorer. But I think I I, I mean I don't I don't know. Um, and I, I think that it's just like I, I'm curious. I the reason I asked you is, is because I I feel like it's maybe it's something that like just through years like on the ground working with players like you start to realize okay like kids who have this trait also like seem to possess another one and i you know i can't prove that they're related but but it certainly seems like they could be right no yeah yeah. i think that's something i'll definitely look at like i I don't know though in my years on the ground like i had eight years on the ground where i was like not looking at anything the right way and i've had two where i think i've been looking at the right way so <laughs> it's yeah. it's all a real work in progress ben go ahead my bad. yeah and just an example i mean like people off often conflate like passing feel and, and team defense feel you know and in terms of like which are two things that like it, like logically make sense that that they'd be connected you know uh, from a fundamental point of being able to read actions whether you have the ball or, or whether you don't have the ball. I mean, obviously, I mean, the, the like the the motor skills within those are different because you know, one, you're you you have to dribble and gather and you know, flick your wrist or or, or make a pass, and the other ones you're you know, moving laterally or you know, flipping your hips or getting vertical at the rim to make a rotation. But I mean, like I, I think a lot of it. Um, I'm not really sure, but obviously, I don't know. Is I don't have an answer to this. I think a lot of it. Like it's just like skills are so interconnected, and like ice, like talking about isolated skills, like are is difficult because like every skill like is, is connected, and every skill has so many other skills you know attached to attached to it. So right. I think like I would like say when you say so, the, the thing that you're talking about is like if you have good feel and you have, have quick processing as a passer, that that should logically translate to your feel on the defensive end to as a help defender. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would understand those to be touch skills. However, I don't think, I think the problem is when you work in the other direction. So like, I think the the really good example would be like Vassell this year, brilliant, brilliant feel as a defensive player, like brilliant help defender, but um, not a wildly impressive offensive decision maker. Uh, And I think there are a few things at play there. Uh, lack of advantage creation, uh, lack of handling ability to, to you know, put himself in the, like, lacking technical ability to execute the decisions that he would be capable of making mentally, and then also just roll what they, you know, what they want uh, players to do at FSU. But I think, um, so I think working in the opposite direction is, is a little more interesting where like, if you're not encumbered by those technical abilities, tech, yeah, by those technical abilities on offense. And so on offense, you're able to execute all of these things uh, you should logically be able to do it on defense also. And so I think you see that with LaMelo, I think is a, is a great example of that. And I think that you do see that, that like feel instincts, whatever are touch skills because LaMelo has those, but it, the problem is, is when you get into more things that I think are closer on the spectrum to technical abilities. So like LaMelo amazing court awareness like really like preternatural court awareness where he and like Nikola Jokic are the two guys alive who will catch you know a defensive rebound and before they've hit the ground before they've before they've turned around are in the process of throwing an outlet 80 feet um so he has this unreal court awareness however he gets slammed by screens and seems to have no clue like where a screen is coming from. And you'd think, right, that he has like some amazing court awareness and can apply that on defense as well. But it doesn't seem like he does. 
Um, and so like there are all these divisions, I guess, within even what like logically you'd think would be a, a touch, uh, like a touch skill. Um, and it and, like parsing that out obviously is huge for projection uh, because we're trying to isolate things and, and, you know, figure out what, uh, what translates to an up to a higher level, what, it, what will hinder you at a higher level. Um, and so I think it's, I mean, it, it's, you know, the, there are these great questions where you're trying to make inferences about prospects and, and, you know, how they think the game and how they just, how they approach the game. And, and you can't really, you're left doing a lot of guesswork and, and like your, the conclusions don't really line up. Right. I think I, in the, oh. I the Kyra, the Kyra example is a much more solid footing than the one where it's like if he's a good passer, then he'll be maybe be a good defender or whatever. Like I, I think that because the Kyra thing is so movement based, like it just seems like if, he, if there's fluidity and movement, and and that processing speed is there in the passing, then why won't there also be in the shoot? Like you know, in the shooting. Whereas the Lamelo is a great example of that, where his his court awareness offensively is second to none almost, right? And yet defensively, it just isn't there right now. So I think that I, and again, this is this is something you guys have thought about way more than I have. So, um, but I, I I would be more inclined to like believe in the Kyra one more than the, um, because the guy is a good passer and has good offensive deal, he'll have good defensive deal. Yeah, yeah, but and I think go ahead, Ben. Yeah, because I, like I'm with Lamelo. I think a lot of it comes out. I mean, to like kind of like in-game reps on both ends, as we've talked about. Because I mean, for I mean, throughout like his entire like basketball life. He's been, I, I, I mean, like since eighth grade or whatever. I mean, even before that. I mean, he's he's showed like flashes and glimpses and uh, of this incredible offensive court awareness and and this incredible ability to, you know to see the whole floor and, and to execute passes. You know, as as early as like tenth grade when he was running the show at Chino Hills. But then, I mean, up until like this season with with Cairns, I mean, he's like never been asked to defend a ball screen in his life. I mean, because it's like at Chino Hills, they they full court pressed the whole game. And and at Spire, I mean, at Spire, he just kind of stood on the block and and swiped on defense, mm-hmm. and like, like you almost never saw him playing actual like NBA defense. And and we're at Cairns in, in the NBA in the NBL. Ill- Illawarra, Illawarra, Ben. Illawarra. Oh, that was a silly yeah. mistake of mine. Illawarra. I don't know why I thought Cairns. Yeah, it, it, with with Illawarra, I mean, he had just never had to play actually i mean it was the first times excuse me he had to actually play you know basketball defense in terms of in terms of you know defending ball screens and and you know doing things like that and i, I like even though like logically he should he should be like aware of where players are coming from that's just like not a thing he's had to deal like he's had to to adapt to his his court awareness too so i think you know this is you know just a hypothesis that you know i i think it's certainly a teachable thing in time you know i just like bringing this to like an evaluative perspective is like a reason i'm i'm, I'm pretty positive on the mellow like, i have number one i think defensive improvement is, is tenable with him because right. he, like he has this baseline court awareness like this spatial awareness um and sense of space and positioning that you see on offense but then like he just hasn't had the reps as a ball screen defender to understand the angles at which ball screens come and how to evade the, those ball screens. And like, and I think, you know, you know, obviously like this, it's going to be fascinating to, to track how he improves defensively, you know, and you know, how he fares in his NBA career. I mean, like, you know, the idea is, is like, you know, as he sees more ball screens, you know, hopefully like some of that awareness can adapt and you know, make, make that more viable. So, yeah, I mean, you talk about like fascinating case studies. I think Lamelo is definitely up there because 
I, I think you're spot on. Like if you apply the the talk that we've you know had about the games approach to Lamelo, like he truly just hasn't seen game reps as a defensive player. Like he he didn't play defense like anything resembling actual defense at Chino Hills. At Spire, it was like marginally more real, but not really. And then with Illawarra, like he's playing defense for a professional basketball team that is trying to win games. Um, so I think that there's definitely like potential that LaMelo's growth on the defensive end could be exponential in a way that we've never seen before, because you're talking about like an all time intellect who has none of the technical ability, but if he gets, if he starts being put in positions where he's forced to develop that technical ability and it catches up enough to the intellectual ability that you could see growth on the defensive end. That's absolutely enormous. And like, unprecedented just because we don't have an example of a guy this smart but also this unrefined um so yeah it's going to be a really interesting case study yeah actually now that now that you've made you both said that uh like i said you guys have thought about this a lot more i'm very convinced of that argument but <laughs> but <laughs> i think the part about Kyra, but I'm, I'm actually i'm not very convinced but i'm like oh okay yeah that makes total sense that he would yeah i mean the problem though is that there are there are confounding things like like effort like and he, he strength. Still, right. yeah. yeah and strength yes and strength and the fact that maybe it's too late for him to learn the technical abilities or like, or maybe it'll take so many reps for him to get the two in sync that, you know, it'll, he'll be 30 by the time that, that, you know, he's capable like physically of, of uh, like acting upon his, his, um, his intellect. Uh, so there are a lot of like confounding elements there, but I think that there's definitely a legitimate argument to be made for the idea that like, we could see unprecedented growth from him on that end yeah. from, from like truly like basically never having played defense to yeah. Yeah. high level NBA defender. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Should we um should we get into into some of the talk about about resources for learning about, about uh player development now? Definitely, yeah, I, I would love to. Let me um let me just so okay so and let me preface this by saying um so again I, I'm going back two years now to May 2018 or the June 2018 when I first kind of really started like saying all right I want to coach basketball for the rest of my life and I don't know anything about player development or I thought I did but I don't and now. I need to start looking into that. And so everything that I've learned along the way, and I want to be really clear about this because I may be speaking very authoritatively right now. Everything that I've learned, I've taken from someone else, literally everything. Um, and and so what what I've I've taken from someone else, and I've perhaps adapted it in some way. Um, and and I think uh, I do want to talk a little bit about learning and what what that actually looks like versus what people think it looks like. Um, but basically, what I try to do is I I've I found something that was convincing this theory of the game's approach, this theory of uh, random practice. I found something that through that I thought was convincing. And then I sought out people who I thought um, really knew what they were talking about. Uh, and I studied those people. And then I tried to implement what they were telling me to do in what I was doing. And so the, the, these are some of the people that I, that I started with the two guys that I started with. Well, the first guy that I started with was Brian McCormick. Um, and he is, he was to me essential because he understanding the conceptual under, like the conceptual underpinnings of the game's approach. That's what he, his books are all about. Uh, and, and he's actually recently transitioned into talking to writing a lot more about shooting. Uh, and so Brian is at Brian McCormick on Twitter and he's 180 shooter on Twitter as well. Uh, and I would, I would very, I would definitely encourage people to look at 180 shooter, um, for just maybe some unconventional 
unconventional um, approaches to thinking about shooting. And I would also encourage people to buy one of, or a few of, I, I own a few of Brian's books uh, on player development. So that was the first guy. And he's, he is, um, I wouldn't, I don't know if he's the godfather of player de- of a games approach or something, but he's certainly the first guy that I had ever heard of talking about that, Brian McCormick. Um, and then the second guy is Chris Oliver. And I've talked a lot about him. Uh, and he's on Twitter. He is basketball immersion. Uh, and he is a guy who I think in five years will be doing whatever he wants to be doing in the game. Um, I, I really have the highest regard for him. Uh, and he has been the most important person in my professional journey, probably in the last few years. And I've literally never met him or talked to him in person. I think he may know who I am, but uh, I've just been studying him and trying to implement his stuff. Um, so Brian McCormick, Chris Oliver, those are the two kind of conceptual places where I started. And then from there, I found a bunch of other guys who I thought were really good. Uh, one of them is Mike Dunn. Mike Dunn is he's most accessible on Instagram. And he's actually in South Jersey, so I've had the, the opportunity to go see him uh, do a workout. And he's a shooting coach. Um, and so I would just follow him on Instagram. I'm not really going to go in anymore on the, what Mike is all about, but he's different. Um, he's very entertaining, but he, re- he I've never seen someone shoot the ball. in Like, you see it on Instagram, right? And it's like, oh, well, yeah, it's just like whatever. This dude in person is incredible. I've never seen someone shoot the ball like him and he's a great teacher of it. So that's, that's the third guy. And then he, his, his mentor is a guy named Rob Foder and he's at the shooting guy on Instagram. And Rob is, um, he's the shooting coach for the Miami heat. Um, so I would follow him as well. He has a lot of really good content. Yeah. So, so we'll, we'll put out uh, a tweet with, with all, with, um, I don't know, all these people's ads, uh, because I mean they they're invaluable resources uh, when it comes to learning about about player development. Um, uh, did, did you had you had a few more? Yeah, I, I just have uh, one or two more. The, the one yeah. guy who I think is really 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 good is a guy named Matt Pugh, uh, and he is actually based in Missouri, I think. I believe he's a Midwestern guy, and he I've talked to him a little bit throughout the years, both on Twitter and then over the phone about he has a three on three development league. Also, which I'm super interested in trying to develop over here in Philly. Um, and he is just a tremendous teacher of the game, Matt Pugh. Uh, he's probably at Matt Pugh on Twitter. And um, Ben and I will have to try to track him down somewhere in Missouri. <laughs> if, if, we're, if we're ever back in the state of Missouri. Large state of Missouri. And then Dakota Webb is another guy, too. And they're, they both used to be with Pure Spet. I don't know if they're both with Pure, Pure Sweat anymore. But they, um, they're both tremendous teachers of the game uh, and guys who are definitely worth a follow. There is no shortage of action going on with our partners over at betonline.ag. The sports world is slowly making its way back with the NBA announcing its return in late July. But right now, UFC, boxing, NASCAR, and international soccer have all resumed play, and BetOnline has the best odds slash lines for their best upcoming games and matches. Need more? BetOnline has simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC happening live every day for our devout gamblers to check out. BetOnline also offers hundreds of live casino games, poker tournaments, and the best props in the business. Visit BetOnline.ag on your computer or mobile device and join now to receive your welcome bonus. BetOnline.ag, your online wagering experts. Oh no! 
Those are the screams I used to make when I would cut myself shaving before I knew about Manscaped. Thank you, Manscaped, for turning my loud shrieks into multiple peaks. Men, start taking notes because Manscaped accidents are finally a thing of the past. The Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0 has been beautifully designed to reduce those painful nicks and tug. This is their third generation trimmer, featuring advanced skin safe technology so you keep your bad boys nice and smooth. When I tell you this is premium, I mean premium. The battery will last up to 90 minutes so you can take a longer shave. The water resistant technology allows you to shave in the shower too. One of the coolest features is the LED light, which illuminates grooming areas for closer and more precise trimming. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code armchair at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code armchair. Your balls will thank you. Um, now, TJ, did you have a few questions that you wanted to flip on onto us and, and you know take the role of, of podcast host and, and put us on the spot? Too many questions. Too many questions for you guys. All right. So we got time. So, so yeah. So I, I've, do you guys want to start with the PD question about skill development or do, do we want to start with maybe, maybe some of the easier questions that I just have about draft and terminology and then let's start with those. The PD one seems like a longer conversation. Yeah. Let's do the easy ones first. Yeah. All right, cool. All right. So let's, um, let's start with, uh, and this is just like me scouring draft Twitter. Cause I, I think I told both of you guys, but one of the reasons that I gravitate toward draft Twitter is because I think that people on draft Twitter are committed to doing good work. Um, and I see that with you guys. I see that with Ross and with Zach um, and with your whole kind of cohort or whatever you, you might, informal cohort or whatever you might call friends it. Of friends, friends of the program, yeah. <laughs> okay. um, and so, so a very simple question. The tier system, how does that work? What okay, is I got it. Yeah, go ahead. I, I mean, like, basically, I mean, you know, like, just like a straight numerical big board is inherently flawed because, you know, all it tells you is, like, player one is better than player two, who is better than player three. And that lacks nuance inherently. So, like, I mean, ranking ranking within tiers, I mean, tells you, let's say, I mean, player two, player, player two is a little bit worse than player one, but significantly better than than player three. Ranking those guys just one, two, three doesn't tell you a lot then. So that's why that's another um, you know tier demarcation. I mean, let's just give an example. You, you have a class, you know, you know, a class of prospects that has Cade Cunningham and Zion Williamson as their as your one, two, and then other guys. I mean, those guys are going to be head and shoulders above everyone else. So ranking like someone third who's head and shoulders below. Can be disingenuous because I mean there's such a such a massive gap. I mean, and it's just you know a more I'll use the word nuance slot, but just you know gives you know a deeper way to look at these kind of prospects because you know I mean player 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 two on on the board is going to be further from player ten or fifteen than player fifty is from player a hundred. I mean that's just historically looking looking at how draft talent shakes out. I mean the guys at the top. There's so, there's such there's such a, a a wider separation than the guys at the bottom. You know, just looking historically at who ends up panning out in these drafts. Um, so that's kind of like a rough roundabout way of explaining, you know, why how I do tiers. You know, why why I and many so many others end up doing tiers. So. I think they can the way people use them uh, can vary a lot person to person, which is why I think it's it's like very important that you remove the ambiguity that can be there and explain what your tiers mean. So last year, what I said in like my uh, primer for my big board was that within tiers, I was receptive to any argument of ordering, but 
the order within was my personal order. But I, I think that for this, like going forward, that my revision of that would be that tiers for me are like logical groupings of, of like, not necessarily archetypes, but of sort of like draft uh, gambles or um, like what you're aiming to acquire. Uh, and that I could even see between tiers arguments for, for people. Um, so like, I guess the way, the example I'll give to explain that, uh, cause I'm, I'm imagining that's not super clear, uh, is that like, I have Leandro Bolmaro in a tier above Grant Riller. And that's because I think that Bolmaro has like a more realistic chance of being like a really high level team offense driver on account of really buying him a lot more as a decision maker, as like a, a, a feel guy, as a, a, um, a guy who, t- who also just like doesn't limit you as a team builder if he achieves a high end outcome because he is so valuable on both ends. Um, however, like I don't necessarily think that there's anything wrong with a person saying that they would rather have Grant Riller, who you're very confident in as, as a scoring prospect over Leandro Bomaro. I think it's a very, very reasonable standpoint to adopt. However, like in, in these groupings where I think the thing that Bomaro represents is a lot more valuable, that's going to be in a higher, in a higher order grouping for me. Um, so I think that that's how my tiers are evolving, that they're value groupings uh, the way I see it. But I, I'm, I'm, um, I'm receptive to, you know, to arguments otherwise. However, I might end up just reverting to my old system and make larger tiers, uh, especially this year. Like, I think you would have, like, if, if your approach to tiers is I can see any order within this tier, um, I think this year you would just have huge tiers. Uh, so I might revert to that. But as of right now, I'm thinking of like a, a value grouping of like what I'm trying to acquire with like at a given spot. And, and that's how my tiers are organized right now. Yeah. And I think there's some, I mean, especially as, as you go down the board, I mean, even at the very top, there, there's some archetypal delineation as you know, in most drafts, the guys at the top of your, at the top of your, your board are going to be guys who you believe are, are, are primary creator uh, or potential primary creators as those guys are, are the most difficult to find and the most important commodity. And even going border going lower. I mean, in, in one of my in like the, the tier that like spans from like the end of my first round um to like middle second i have lots of wings and then below that i will have more of the guards and more of the bigs because generally just like wings are you know are more important and, and more difficult to find especially like guys who can play on rookie contracts as you know those guys are tough to find whereas you know fringy you know scoring guards like like, like i think of someone like jared butler who i have a lot lower because you know Jared Butler's talented, but you can find, you know, a scoring guard in, you know, the Adriatic on like quite a few teams. So that's just like, there's some archetypal, you know, evaluation, but of course, I mean, that varies and it's, it would, you can't just like ascribe archetypes directly to value, but there, there is some importance there of, of positional scarcity. So. Well, but can, what I think, I mean, you can, like, that's, that's what I, kind of could, I, yeah. that's what I was asking, like, because I think that I like big boards to me, like I said, with my example earlier about like, who's. I had to rank 50 players that I scouted over four games. And like, I was, I spent like 15 minutes deciding if Abbon Gilder should be above Ryan Klein, like at number 45. Like, what am I doing? Right. They're in the same tier. Right. So like, that's why I've, I've always gravitated towards the tier system. Um, but I, I was just wondering about the, the, like the, like you, like you guys are explaining right now, the, the delineations between tiers. Yeah. yeah. I think the larger point though, with, with like, 
a thorough interrogation of the tier system of big boards in general is kind of how silly a general big board is. And this is something that, that a uh, friend of the program, Zach Milner has, has talked about a lot, especially with relation to this class, which, which is just so context dependent, which is something that like so many of our episodes have, have really kind of hinged upon is how context dependent this class is that a, a general big board is kind of silly in the absence of like a Zion and then, you know, clear players who are clearly behind them and then have clear delineations between those players. Like it's kind of a silly concept because like, if I'm a team that wants to play a drop, like I'm not going to draft Obi Toppin very highly at all. Like it just doesn't work. Um, Or if I'm, if I'm a team that like is looking for, um, for like a creator I'm not going to be drafting Denny highly. Like I'm not going to be drafting Tyrese Halliburton highly, but if I'm, if I'm the Toronto Raptors and I have a top five pick, like maybe I am considering Tyrese Halliburton because you know, he can slide in there. If I'm, if I'm the Milwaukee Bucks where you've got like two superstar level creators on your team already, like I, maybe I'm considering Halliburton really, really highly, but you know, if I'm the Knicks, that that's not factoring into my equation until way, way later in the draft. So I think that like general big boards are, kind of i think they can be supplanted to an extent by a tier system where you're where you're like all right it's gonna vary on a team by team basis within these tiers but these tiers are gonna stay relatively fixed so i think that's another like uh you know point of utility for tiers to sort of replace big boards which while like they drive clicks and interest and people really want like an ordinal ranking or whatever it is like people really really want that but it's really not the best way to go about this like i personally i i I have i don't really care if i had you know cam reddish 12th or 10th i care more about like understanding in advance why he succeeds or fails um and if i can do that like i can make a case for or against a player uh and, and you know and it it's it's just you know it's a lot more it lends a lot more like nuance to a a situation that is very nuanced like it's not just okay this is the best player on my board and i have to then be a slave to that board and take that player and that's a good pick or that's a bad pick no like there's there's a lot more to this than that right and and that's why i've always like i i've like kind of like i'm insinuating i i think the big boards are like what, what is this and I've always found mocks to be more, you know, mocks based on whatever, whatever the current like draft order is to be more interesting than a big board for sure. Because like you're thinking about fit, you're thinking about uh, if, they're, if they're playing drop coverage or not, <laughs> like they're not going to draft Obi Toppin. And then, so the tier system was, like you said, kind of supplanting uh, was kind of the thing that I guess I had in mind, but also the, the qualification of what a tier, what tier, what each tier means. And then I guess the, the spinoff question for that was like, and Ben, I think you kind of addressed this, was why aren't there more tiers within the second round? Yeah, and I think that's just because, you know, looking historically, um, the, you know, the drop-off as the drop-off in talent as you go lower in the draft um, is, is, is massive. And there's a guy named Jay-Z, Mas- Jay-Z Maslish, um, former Stepian draft writer, isn't around anymore, but is someone who, like, shaped my philosophy quite a bit as I was coming up, you know, he, he has a piece that I'd recommend that, you know, UTJ could read and, you know, everybody who's listening is interested to read, you know, about the talent curve and, and about tears. And just, you know, there's 
such little difference at the end. You know, I, I mean, I'm sure you, you know on on Prep the Pro at some point you talked about how you know after after pick 45, you know, it it really matters less because like just looking at historical hit rates, it, it's so much harder you know to separate guys between you know guy guy 50 and 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 prospect 100 on right. the board as you know the difference between like zion let's say let's say, let's say the, the difference between lamello and like at least for me and for max i know the difference between like lamello and, and and tyrese halliburton is is significant is is very significant and and yet and yet there are a lot fewer spots um and let's say like i don't know like on my board someone like someone like colby ross and and jared butler might be 40 spots apart yet the separation between them is almost nothing in in reality um, right. it, 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 it's not meaningful which is why you know like like let's say i, I have colby ross at 90 and i have jared butler at like 60 like, like if you if you argue that you know, colby ross is a better prospect i'm like fine it's it's not a meaningful a meaningful difference so i mean that's why you know as i go down you know these because you know i mean like being like a good nba player is like really difficult and you know i feel like a lot of myself included like like overcomplicate like scouting a lot of lower level guys because like at some point these guys have to be really good if they're going to be like good nba players because it's you know very few of these guys actually reach that peak you know, with a lot of the lower level guys who are going to end up, you know, being Euro players or, or being longtime G League players, anyways, or may- maybe like two way guys at some point. Um, there's right. just not a lot of separation. So that, that was a really long winded answer. But no, hopefully, that's going to add some clarification. Yeah. I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I do tier well into the second round. Yeah. Um, but. I stop tiering when I don't think guys are NBA players anymore because yeah, at that point, agreed. to me, it's to me, it's all the same tier. If I don't think you're, in, if you, I don't think you have a realistic shot to be an NBA player, right. so like I'll tier the difference between uh, like Sadiq Bay and Najee Marshall. I've got Sadiq Bay in like the mid 30s and Najee Marshall in the like late 40s. Um, I'll tier the difference between that, but when I, when we're talking like Jamias Ramsey and Jay Scrub, like I don't think either one of them is really an NBA player, so I'm not going to tier. The Max is going to piss a lot of people off. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm just, I'm just going to have a, a final tier that's guys I don't think are NBA right, right, are going right, to be right. NBA players. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll tier as long as long as I think that there are meaningful enough differences that I don't really see a case for ranking one guy above another. Another, I'll, I'll, I'll tier them. Right. Or, or as long as I see you know, like value differences that are significant enough that I think they deserve to be grouped differently. Like I'll keep tiering. Gotcha. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, yeah. And then I had a question. Well, I have some stats questions about use of stats, but let's just go to terminology real quick. Cause I, I think these are, these are quick knockout, knockout ones. So point of attack D does this just, does this just mean on ball de- defense? Oh yeah. I just yeah. on ball, but I mean, I'm, I'm thinking like usually like ball screen, ball screen. Uh, situations. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, like on, on ball, ball, ball screen, uh, yeah. Okay, so like point of attack could be like simply guarding someone who's trying to break you down at the dribble one on one, or it could mean an actual like guardian ball. action, guardian, yes, ball yes. screen, dribble handoff, like not. But I, I would, yeah, and I wouldn't consider like closeout defense to be point no. of attack defense, right? Right, gotcha. just like, just like yeah. yeah. All right, uh, jumbo wing, uh, just a a large wing player who's like a like wing forward sized uh i think that i don't know if we've just used the term jumbo wing but it if was a jumbo if we had jumbo creator maybe yeah it should be like, ju- it, jumbo the, 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 like jumbo wing initiator 
Yeah, um, exactly. the the term The term, at least the way I've used it, should be jumbo initiator. Where yeah. it's yeah, it's an oversized uh, creator. That was my. So, so think, you think you're Giannis, like Luca types. Yeah, LeBron. Right, jumbo initiator was the one you guys were using in uh, in the one with PD. Yeah, yeah. Then it it was definitely in reference to Jumbo and Yeah. I mean, I think big wing is a different thing where I think of like someone like Paul George, who's like a legit 6'10". There's a difference between that and like Jalen Brown, who's also a wing player, but is like 6'6". Six, six. Um, yeah, so like I think there's a big difference there. And I would refer to like a Paul George or I guess Kevin Durant as like a big wing. Uh, but yeah, Jumbo Initiator is like a LeBron, Luka, Giannis. Yeah. Um, and then secondary creator. So I, I I think these are these are all like things that I think I know you, what you're talking about, but I just like I gotta make sure yeah. like secondary creator versus primary creator like yeah yeah I mean to someone who's you know maybe not good enough or just isn't able to you know be the guy who who carries um a significant like the the major offensive load I mean it's probably easier to like think of this in the inverse you know primary creators are these these ball dominant players like like Luca or or Trey Young in the NBA or or, or LeBron or I mean like like Michael Jordan going back, you know, you know, secondary, you know, talk about secondary creators, maybe players who, who can't command like a 30 usage and can't run offense every single time. And maybe are, are guys who can't be the, the primary driver of offense on like a very good team, but can be a compliment to that guy. You know, maybe they're lacking, lacking in burst. So, so they're, so they're best optimized, you know, like, would it be like secondarily. Like who? Like is it like a Cam Reddish could be a potential secondary creator? Like if we think about even the Hawks. Right? Yeah, I mean Cam Reddish, Kevin Herter. Kevin Herter. I mean, I tend to think yeah. of someone who who's attacking a defense that's already been put in rotation yeah. to some degree, yeah. and then can make plays off of that. Or it can, or or like you know, another part of that role would be to like you know, if the whatever the primary object of a of a uh, like play design is. You know, after after that fails, then we can resort to you know doing something with this guy. But I tend to think of like uh about of like attacking something that's already been uh like an advantage that's already been created, and then and then they can make plays off of that. But you're not the one who's who's like offering the the genesis of the of the advantage creation. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, at least in terms of like this draft, we think of someone as like Tyrese Maxey as someone who like isn't going to like necessarily t- be able to tilt the defense consistently by himself, but someone who's going to, you know, be able to attack a, a tilt the defense regularly because of, you know, his ability to attack on the catch. Right. Like Ty- Tyrese Maxey isn't breaking guys down off the dribble, but like if it's if a ball if a, if a pass is kicked to him out of a pick and roll and he like gets to attack a closeout, then he can make like a simple kick out out of that. He can get to the rim and finish. He can he take a one dribble pull up, but like he's not the guy who's running 20 pick and rolls a game. That's a guy, correct me if I'm wrong with Tyrese Maxey, because I haven't watched a ton of these guys, like I said. Like I've watched, I, I think Sadiq Bey. I've watched my, a lot of Miles McBride, who's not the Yes. Guy. Yeah, we'll talk about him in a second. But, but correct me if I'm wrong with Tyrese Maxey. He's a guy who's going to be really interesting to watch with regards to the question we had earlier about different roles and how they might meld together. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, he played on the ball, uh, whole all life. the time, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, high, yeah. High school, AAU. Um, I, I, he played, he played FIBA as well, right? Yeah, ben? he did, but he wasn't really, yeah. FIBA was in the time where he, um, was off ball a lot next to, I mean, Cole Anthony, I believe was the main guy on that team. Yeah. Yeah. But again, he, like, I don't think he played as much. In FIFA, I mean FIFA compared to you know high school and AAU as well. So 
Right. But well, yeah, no, he, he's, he's definitely gonna, he, he's he's been on the ball, but he's also going to now have to be not so much on the ball, right? Yeah, no, it, it's definitely a, ca- a case of that. Um, I think it's 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 interesting because I, I I think in his in his Schmidt's like film room thing, he did mention that he was trying to learn how to play off the ball, and it was really yeah. uncomfortable for him. And you see all these things that like used to be part part of his game, like for example, the shooting um, that just kind of vanished this year, um, because I think he was just a lot less comfortable, and he he just didn't have experience playing in that role. Uh, I think that you know comes into play and there's also just issues of, of variance in a small sample size but yeah it'll be it'll be interesting I think with him maybe it'll be less melding into another role and more it, that just like how much of of his primary creator skills that he had uh in high school and AU can he bring to a more secondary role which is what I think he just will be in the NBA but we could definitely I think there are definitely scenarios where Tyrese Maxey winds up at a level where he is a a combo guard of sorts where he right. he is doing a lot off the ball but also is is playing on the ball more than your average like two guard i guess essentially yeah. um in which case yeah i think it would be the melding of like he has to learn how to be a good off ball player and then can also bring in these skills that he's always been honing as an on ball player mm-hmm. um all right can we talk some stats real quick yeah let's do it all right so um let's i want to start with the true shooting uh, metric. Um, mm-hmm. What is the what is everyone's infatuation with true shooting as a gauge of like overall shooting skill? And even like I, I read one article, I think it was an athletic article where the guy was like, if you don't have an over fifty percent true shooting, I'm not going to consider you for my, like top year or something like that. And so like, yeah, Lamella, I, I mean, uh, it just that, seems that stuff is ridiculous. I mean, lazy, like lazy. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. I mean, in true shooting, I'll say true shooting is, is an important tool um, in terms of like, in more in terms of, you know, evaluating whether or not an NBA player is good and less about prospects. Um, well, not good, not good, but not good. efficient, like, efficient yeah. scoring. Efficient in their scoring. Role. Yeah. And again, role is key because because true shooting re- requires a lot of context. I mean, even beyond talking about like relative true shooting, you know, adjusting to, to league average that year, guys, guys in a higher usage role are you know going to going to take on lower true shooting more often i mean you talk about a guy who's like 60 true shooting with like a 10 usage and and people will swoon over that when in reality it's you know that's that's a lot less useful than a guy who's like maybe like 52 53 and 30 usage i mean obviously again context is important but that's the general just and you know as, as a prospect you know there's so many you know variables to, to to shooting development like as we talked about plenty you know it's 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 a really difficult thing to do you know and there's so many like like volume and, and and like touch and free throws and versatility that go into it that you know using just like putting like like lamello's true shooting was not very good this year sure like but, but like citing that as like the reason he's not going to shoot tool like it's just like yeah no yeah i i mean it's it's just not a thing that you can do i mean there's there's no historical basis in like projecting like guys who had like high true shooting to the nba i I mean like marcus howard has like an incredible true shooting percentage he's likely not gonna be an nba player for like a lot of reasons i mean and and the mellow obviously will be so and then yeah so so yeah i i didn't really want to go too deep into that but i was just just like it just seems like a lot of laziness and not wanting to watch film can, can I can I do a quick t- true shooting spiel? Because yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, okay, so yeah, anyone who's <laughs> anyone anyone who's using true shooting as like it, 
a measure of shooting ability, like jump shooting ability. Yeah, like don't even, I wouldn't even listen to that. That's insane. Like have fun making the case that Yudoka Azubuki is a good shooting prospect. Um, <laughs> but um, the reason I've come to hate true shooting and like in the context of true shooting is like, I would much rather see that than field goal percentage, uh, like a uh, uh, holistic field goal percentage, I guess. Or I'd rather see e-field goal than field goal percentage. Like a- any alternative to field goal percentage basically is good. But the reason I've come to hate true shooting is because there's, it does not account at all for role. So you have people citing true shooting. Um, and it's like the NBA Twitterification of, of like all basketball discourse to a point that's like really bad because the only like true shooting is not the only thing that matters. It, it like tells you how efficient someone is in their role, but roles have like vastly varying degrees of difficulty. Like James Harden putting up 60 true shooting with the largest usage ever, not to mention that like his isolation load is beyond is historic. It's totally unprecedented. That is very different from like Ed Davis putting up 60 true shooting on 12% usage in 12 minutes a game. Like they're not remotely the same thing. And then the other reason I hate true shooting is because of historical comparisons, people use uh, true shooting and they'll say, uh, these are the only seasons with 28 plus points per 100 and 60 plus true shooting in NBA history. And it's like Steph Curry, Isaiah Thomas, Michael Jordan, um, and it's like, yeah, well, I wonder what these people have in common. It's like two of the greatest scorers of all time and one guy who happened to play in the last five years and was, yes, very, very, very good. But like Isaiah Thomas is not one of the uh, three greatest scorers of all time. Um, so the lack of historical context on true shooting when it's used to compare guys across era, I think is really bad. However, what basketball reference has just added is a uh, like shooting, adjusted shooting, shooting yeah. tab which has a, uh, it's scaled to a hundred, I think. So every, every point above or below hundred would be one percentage point above better or worse average. than league average, which I think is a very useful thing to have. I don't know if you can query that yet in uh, play index, but that's can. a really nice thing to have. And they don't yet have it for sports reference. So not relevant to prospects, but uh, that, that's my, that's my like soapbox thing on true shooting. Uh, don't just use it to compare guys across different roles. Uh, what we should be doing is, at the very least, you should be looking at uh, efficiencies in play types and then weighting those play types according to league average in those play types, which I believe or is what Mike Savagno and Jackson Frank did. But it was just for a snapshot in time that was not a live updating thing. A live updating version of that would be very useful, though. Right. Or just like kind of back to my, I think my original issue is, or just watch the tape. Like, yeah. <laughs> if you're trying to project shooting, like, watch the guy shoot a lot. Um, which is yeah. for me to say, yeah. kind of synergy, but like, um, and that was my, that was my, I guess my next question, just tr- like rolling over into synergy efficiency data. Um, and Sadiq Bay would be the, the and, and you guys talked about this. Sadiq, Sadiq Bay was probably one of the guys, like him and Miles McBride, and I guess maybe David Mitchell, the three guys who I've looked at like pretty closely. Um, and again, Davion Mitchell and Miles Brad aren't in this class, but I looked at Sadiq Bay because everyone was like, oh, secondary creator, secondary creator, because of his simply based on his 98% PNR uh, efficiency from uh, Synergy. And like you guys have said this on previous pods with PD and, and, and in PD's um, breakdown of Sadiq Bay said so the same thing is that he, he it's not there. No, no, zero, zero advantage creation. Not whatsoever. Um, like, it's not there. It's not and, and the idea of him as a 
passer, like, is a nice one. But if you just think about the context of Villanova where he's coming from and you watch the tape, like, they're all, those are all pre-programmed reads for the most part. It's not any kind yeah. of, like, processing creativity. And, like, I really like him as a player. Like, I think he'll be okay. Um, but but I think that I, – I just think that, like, I like analytics and stats and things like that. But those t- things like that are just such a malfunction of what stats are supposed to do. Um, so, I, yeah, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't really like synergy numbers very much. I, I – like – it's a nice novelty to have, but realistically, I should probably just stop paying for the stats. Um, but like the the only like it's it's useful when you look at very specific things. I think, which is something that's good about draft Twitter is that a lot of guys, when they're using synergy stats, they are using it very specifically. So I know, like like Zach will cite uh, a lot of times, like spot up no dribble jumpers to get an idea of of what kind of like an off the cat shooter a guy is and that's that's a valuable thing to look at or to look at like how often a guy is getting to the rim out of iso pick and roll and maybe spot ups if you want to throw that in like those are really valuable to me i think yeah yeah i think i think i think mike gribanov is the one who who really does a lot of that yeah um but using very specific things from synergy great looking or also i think looking at play type frequencies to me is is useful because it gives you an yeah, idea of I think frequency is more important than the efficiency to me i mean i mean yeah not, it, 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 definitely. i mean it can give you an act like actual insights into a player whereas like you you can see that like desmond bain like play type wise plays very similarly to like ty jerome and landry shamit now you probably like based on the comps that you're going to see from like the ringer like you're going to think that desmond bain plays like eric gordon and marcus smart and that couldn't be further from the truth but looking at synergy play type uh just distributions like you'll get a pretty good idea that he actually plays like one of these guys that weighs under 200 pounds um and is like a college creator right he just he just looks like a linebacker yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't have much to add. Yeah. Uh, um, what was I gonna say? Uh, yeah, I think that. I mean, I have I have a million other things that I could ask, but do you guys want to touch on this? Um, go back to the skill development question, just real quick. Yeah, the one that the one that PD posed uh, when he was on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to you want to um, uh, just reiterate what that what that question is. Yeah, so the question that that PD asked was, which of these skills is most changeable? And I think I think I got that word right. Shooting, playmaking, tools, tools being movement or or like weight gain or like strength, uh, dribbling, feel, and defense. Those are the. I, so I guess my answer to this question would be that I refuse to answer it because the, <laughs> like the category, the categories have to be broken down so much more and clarified to a point that like it, the question completely changes. Um, because like by defense, do you mean uh, like defending ball screens? Because like provided you have like, not outlier uh lateral movement ability in either direction like you and, and you aren't like like stiff as an absolute board like if you're a guy who like never even gets into a defensive stance and like doesn't have the footwork to get over a ball screen like i feel like for the most part that can be pretty like can be developed pretty easily like like we see with killian hayes in the past year that he went from like bottom of the barrel to like close to elite uh in that regard but when you're talking, if by defense you mean, you know, making the like feel plays that Xavier Tillman does at like tagging 
you know, cutters and, and, uh, uh, rotating at the rim and just like doing these things that he has just like built up the pattern recognition to do over uh, like probably hundreds of thousands of hours of playing basketball. I think that that's impossible to develop. And then, I mean, the thing that, that like, I know we had talked about handling, like, do you mean protecting the ball enough so that you don't get stripped when you're attacking a closeout? Or do you mean becoming Kyrie Irving? Because I don't think becoming Kyrie Irving is remotely possible, but, you know, becoming Jalen Brown, where you can like get to the rim without someone stripping you. Like, I think that's pretty possible. So I think that this question just has to be like made so much more specific to the point that it's like, you're asking a different question. Right. right. Cause yeah. yeah, I think to your point, like, well, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Ben. Sorry. But I, I, yeah, I, I agree with you, but yeah. I, still- I mean, I'm pretty much agree. Like, 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 I think like my answer for both of these, like, my, like, could be like, like, like playmaking feel. Like again, like, like he, he said, like becoming Kyrie Irving is possible. Like becoming Chris Paul, becoming Steve Nash, becoming Luka Doncic, in like that, that being so manipulative and, and brilliant as a playmaker, I, I don't think is really possible. But like becoming a guy who can make a kick to the corner off of a short roll, or like like Max said earlier, I mean, kick to the weak side corner in the pick and roll, I think is very teachable as like learn reads in, in certain situations like you say okay like, like we, we talked about this in the past like i mean like we talked about this with i think um onyeka kongu but it applies to any to any big really i mean on the short roll you, you say if the corner is open you pass to the corner if not you try to go finish and and like you can teach that and you can drill it in but again i and i think that's that's something that like we've seen uh, like happen a lot in the nba but i don't think like we really ever see guys going from like that to to a preternatural passer or, or decision maker or something like that. Right. Yeah. I don't know what my answer to this question is either. It's, it's a, yeah. all, I think, I think the answer kind of bend to your point is that like all of these skills are intertwined to such a degree that it's so hard to um, really answer. But I think it's worth it. It's worth me for me as a coach considering uh, just in a more simplified version, because like, it's like, all right, so what, how do I identify an attack then? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but uh or just, I mean, what's worth your time to, you know, what's what's worth the time and resources that you have that are limited? You know, what what should you uh, try to improve? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and for me, like the question that I ask myself, and I, I've asked myself, and tried to ask others, is like, what is the most important skill for a player to have? And and at, through time, I've basically come to answer the answer that I've come up with is shooting. Is in in a way, and I don't feel that strongly about that. But like, if you can shoot, you can be on the floor. How many dudes are on the floor because they they can shoot the ball, or on a team because they can shoot the ball? And and if yeah. they shoot, they they wouldn't be anywhere close to the floor. Um, so that's that's what I try to like go after a little bit. Um, and in addition to everything else, of course. Yeah, I I think that's definitely true. But the my problem with that from like in evaluating prospects and trying to acquire scarce resources thing it is if shooting is the most malleable skill which i think we all agree that it probably is among these like shooting shooting really can be improved i mean you can go from being blake griffin early in his career to blake griffin late in his career like those are you're talking about transition from non-shooter to like best big man shooter in the league who is like shooting a high volume of pull-up threes like if you had showed that to to me as like a however i don't know like 14 year old watching young Blake griffin i would have thought that you know this is it's like not real um but you can't do that with other stuff. So if you're talking about like a mind like Xavier Tillman's or like Tyrese Halliburton's, like you, 
can't get that elsewhere. You can't just teach that. So if that's the if shooting is the thing that's like the most important thing to have, but also the easiest to teach, then like you, sh- I feel like you, in, unless like the shooting is an absolute lock, this is kind of how I approach it. So like Neesmith has significant value just because like the shooting is a lock like he's a very very good shooter but when you're talking about a guy who's like a pretty good shooter and that's his only appeal so think like uh aj lawson or jamias ramsey like a guy who's who's really only appeal is as a pretty good shooter like if i think i can teach someone to get to jamias ramsey's level as a shooter then i would just so much rather have the guy who has the things that i can't teach right yeah yeah i'm with him yeah, no, I, I was yeah. As an evaluator, I totally agree with you. As a coach, I'm like, all right, let's let's kind of try to teach you. Yeah, because 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 as a coach, right, you just you just want to get a guy to a point where like he can play for you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. no, we're running up against time here. I wanted to. Can I just end on one note real quick? Oh yeah, we we can go as long as you want. Right. We we have plenty of time. Yeah. Um, because I I think there there are just a few kind of like again I've been on this journey so to speak for two years. Um, and one of the most important things to me, and this is this is kind of stemming from partially from PD's um, introduction to wings. He talks about a lot of this stuff uh, or this general philosophy about how we all talk about basketball and how we all talk about players and and things like that. Um, And one of the most important underlying things for me in my life and my career and my like pursuit of this is that I'm doing this because I love to do it, right? Obviously, like you guys love, do this because you love to do it. This is what makes me feel most fulfilled. But at the end of the day, all of these conversations and all of these things, like the game is about the players, um, full stop. Uh, and and that's that's kind of what I try to um, – what has guided me through the, a lot of this is like, hey, I'm doing this. I decided to do this and delve into coaching because I, I found that it is what it is what made me most fulfilled. But – um, B, in doing so, I try to keep top of mind at all times that the game is about the players and not about the fans or the coaches or the evaluators or the scouts or the TV people on TV. It's, it's the game's about the players. And that's, I just kind of wanted to end on that note just to, um, not end on the note, but that's, that's something that I've always tried to keep in mind for the last two years or so. Following the senseless murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and countless other black community members at the hands of police officers, we want to ensure that we do what we can to make a tangible impact on those communities as we grow. Armchair Media will be issuing four $500 scholarships per semester to aspiring black creatives. If you've ever been dismissed as having an unrealistic career path, if you've ever butted heads with parents or teachers because they don't recognize exactly what you want to do with your life, if you have feared to express yourself or put your work into the world due to potential backlash, we strongly encourage you to apply. We recognize that there are creatives out there who may have bypassed college to pursue other avenues, who didn't get into college because their passions didn't translate to collegiate testing, or who did not have access to the financial means to pay for college. This is why there are only three requirements for eligibility. Black creative under the age of 21, and you submit a project, graphic design, photography, writing, audio, video, journalism, creative writing, to scholarship at armchairallamericans.com. That's scholarship at armchairallamericans.com. Yeah, I mean, I think that's especially uh, poignant right now that that basketball is about basketball, basketball players. players. Yeah.
right, so, um but should we get into the briefly some catching eye guys yeah then? we can go quickly um i'll go with my guy um eric Gaines, who is a uh 2021 draft candidate it was actually you know surprisingly relevant to our conversation uh, i didn't plan this but you know i'll get into you know he's just a six foot three he's re- really really uh good player uh, a good prospect in my opinion six foot three skinny guard um wild pretty wild shot making flashes and, and handling flashes super bursty um really tight ball control flexible with the ball can, can do all of the moves get get to the rim um, and then defensively, he has some like incredible instincts and makes some ridiculous plays, you know, at the help defender. And then like, <clears throat> it's just always moving has a crazy energy. But then like, the things with him, I mean, he, he, I mean, is a pretty baffling decision maker on offense and, and on both ends. And besides being real thin, that's the issue with him. And uh, the reason I think he's relevant to this conversation is he's another guy who is, you know, an off the grid kind of development type as I mean, he played for. Um, I can't think of what his school is at this point. Um, but it's a small school in oh, it's I think it's Lithonia. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Lithonia, Georgia, a small like a small school. Um, where he was pretty under recruited. Um, he played only three games. Um, I think three or four games with with, with um Team United at EYBL before an injury. So he hasn't really like had a spotlight, and his development's been very off off the rails and you know i think mike gribbenoff said this in in, in like a, a, a a group chat that he plays like he's never been coached and like that's really true like like he plays off like all instinct and like he's gonna get the, the job right uh comparisons because of you know the athleticism and, and the handle and just the frame in general um i was talking with uh pd um I, I kind of like he kind of agreed that I kind of think of him as like good Ashton Hagens as because like <laughs> as, as like Hagens as a guy who like plays purely off instincts and like doesn't really have you know, kind of like doesn't seem like he has a lot of rhyme or reason to what he's doing. And Gaines is similar, but you know, unlike Higgins, he can you know dribble, and he's very good at dribbling and shot making. So he's another guy who I'm fascinated to see. I should mention he's going to LSU next year um, to play um, with them, and I'm I'm fascinated to see how he ends up at the college level. And I think he could be a guy who really rises throughout the year and throughout as people begin to see like how talented he he truly is. So. That's another thing that we could we could do an entire episode on is guys who who do seemingly play off of instinct uh, without like basketball experience. Of course, Lamelo is a huge example of that. But I'm now thinking of like the multi sport guys who are kind of late to basketball or or anyone who's late to basketball in general. But the multi sport guys like there's Miles McBride who was a big time football player I think until. Uh, I don't know, very late in his high school career. And Jalen Suggs, who, what was a three-star recruit as a quarterback, um, is in next year's uh, class going to, or as of right now, is going to Gonzaga uh, and is a a pretty brilliant basketball player. Um, But yeah, these multi-sport guys where I think like there are probably like, I don't want to say touch skills, but in terms of like just spatial awareness, I think there probably are, like crossover points between playing football and playing basketball. Like, I I think that there are probably like certain patterns that you start to recognize or just like, yeah, an awareness of what's around you that, that is influenced by that. So that's, I mean, that's a fascinating uh, developmental conversation that I don't know that any of us are qualified to have. Um, But yeah, the, the late to basketball thing is, is really interesting. And I think there are a lot of like different, philosophical views on that and uh, like uh, not a lot of uh of uh you know empirical evidence and and like yeah it's a it's a really interesting um topic i don't know if you guys have anything to add before i go I on to my- one thing this is uh, this is chris I'll, yeah go ahead. he always says is that basketball is a late development sport right so whereas golf 
let's take golf as an example. Golf, like if you look at Rory McIlroy swinging a club when he was three years old, like he had that, right? <laughs> he had what he has now. He had back then. But basketball is a late development sport, and that's, that's I think that it all it is all it all can also be an early development sport. But you see that's you see players like this all the time. Kind of to your point, Ben and, and Max. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's it's a sport where lots of weird things happen with development, especially because you're talking about. Like, yes, football players are total physical outliers, uh, but they're not, like, height outliers. Like, they're, for the most part, are, like, normal-sized human beings height-wise. Now, they're not normal-sized in terms of, like, you know, the muscle volume that they have and that sort of stuff. But basketball players, you're talking about guys that, like, pretty much by definition have to undergo, like, a ridiculous outlier growth spurt that, like does something to the human body that's like pretty abnormal and weird so i think you see like really weird development and really weird arcs of skill development like jason tatum comes to mind because like watching him in peach jam as like a six foot six guard who's like a really really competent pick and roll operator is very very different from watching jason tatum as like a six eight and a half freshman at duke who's like a power forward and then i don't think it's I don't think it's a coincidence that then by the time Jason Tatum is a, like really understands how to use his body again, by the time he's like a second or third year player in the NBA, that all of a sudden you have this six, 10 and a half, uh, you know, ball handler who is, you know, maybe the, you know, the, one of the great wing pull-up shooters that we've ever seen um, because he had, you know, he had this weird acclimation process and like, I don't want to say skill regression, but like skill derailment, um, because like you can see, I think he, he had a huge growth spurt, I think between his junior and senior years of high school where he like very visibly grew and you see things like his handle getting looser, like something that has uh, kind of remained a problem even to this day, but, but he like maintains the, the moves and the like deception in space that he has a six, six guard. So I think that sort of thing is unique to basketball because of the way that the, that guys develop physically. And is also like drives home the importance of watching guys across multiple years because like if you don't do that, you miss that si- that six six sixteen year old Jason Tatum was like a big time pick and roll ball handler. He wasn't just like a post up and ISO four at Duke. Yeah, I had no idea that. I before you were like started posting videos of that on Twitter, I was like, wait, what? He could do this because I, I yeah he do right. And then yeah, I, 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 when we're done, I'll I'll send you a couple links to yeah. to like old Jason Tatum games that I found, but it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so my, my one catching eye guy is Killian Tilly. Uh, so Killian Tilly has had a rough go of it with injuries, obviously, and has lost a lot of the, the movement that made him special. Um, but he still is like positionally, I think really, really mobile. Um, and he's just, he's such a brilliant uh, feel an intelligence guy. He's such a brilliant touch guy. Like you hit Killian Tilly on the roll and like from 17 feet, that runner is money. Um, I have the numbers here. Was he? He's over his four years, 31 of 58 on runners, according to synergy, which is uh, it's over 50%. It's, it's really good. Um, I, that like number seems too low. I think he had more runners than that, honestly, but like crazy, crazy touch guy. Um, and it's like such a brilliant passer, like such a such a quick decision maker. Defensively, it's not just he has the movement, but he has the intelligence. Um, 
he, he like he's a great communicator. He is, I mean, he just he processes things so quickly. Um, so just a brilliant mind, like wonderfully skilled. I mean, I didn't even tell, talk about the shot at all. That's so quick that like is legitimately versatile for a guy who's six nine, six ten. Like he can shoot in a lot of different um, uh, scenarios. He can shoot off the dribble, off movement, uh, you know, off a pick and pop, off spot up. Like the guy is so wildly skilled, so intelligent. If if he stays healthy, I mean, he's a good NBA player. Like it's yeah, and it, and at that point, like you know, you got to draft him like pretty high. I think even if you think you're gonna get a year of healthy Killian Tilly, it's the same argument as Jonte. It's like if this is the 37th pick or something like that, like who cares if I get a year out of him? If he if this is a year of good NBA play, like that's worth the 37th pick. Like you have people trading first round picks to get Marcus Morris for half a season. And he's not even good. Like it, it's just, I think it's pretty obvious that Killian Tilly. Yeah. Like unless unless you have a hundred percent confidence that he is like never going to play in the NBA, uh, you should draft him like fairly high. Yeah. All right. I think um, that's kind of all we have. Because we could talk for forever, but I mean, yeah, at some point we have to. Different bottom Miles McBride. That's that. <laughs> oh, there will definitely be. Yeah. Uh, a deuce mcbride pod at, at some point in, in the future I, I, I can promise that so yeah i mean thank you, you so much just rename the entire podcast the deuce McBride <laughs> podcast. yeah like name our podcast after him name our children after him I mean, <laughs> it's it, lots of deuces um in, in the preps of pro family so yeah um with that thank you so much to, to tj for coming on again you can follow him at tj farrick on twitter right um just yeah. your name yeah. Um, again, follow the pod at uh, Prep uh, Number Two Pro Pod. Follow uh, Max at Max A Carlin. You can follow me at Ben underscore Pfeiffer underscore. And unless anybody has anything else to say, uh, I think we're gonna cut it. All right. Me on, guys. Uh, Come on. Of course. Have a nice day.